Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to be together tonight to study from your word. We pray that you'll bless us tonight as we delve into the book of Acts. We pray that we can find things that are beneficial to us, that will strengthen us in your service and bring glory to your name. We pray, Father, that you'll bless the congregation here, bless the elders as we're seeking for a new youth minister. We pray that one will come our way that will be beneficial and strengthen our young people as they grow into mature adults. We pray, Father, that each of us will let our light shine to those around us that will resist temptation and that will be prepared when you come again. Our Father, we ask this prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to go ahead and jump in here because there is so much to cover. We are in, um, let's see, I don't have a reader here tonight, do I? Okay, well, I will be the reader tonight. I want to bring you up to speed here. So here is a map. And this is the area around the Mediterranean Sea. And I just want to trace the journey to get us in the context. So we're going to zoom in a little bit. And I have been playing with this to kind of learn how to do this on the screen. So I'm going to bring you up to speed. We're going to start in chapter 13. And I'm just going to run through it real quick to bring you up to speed. Uh, in fact, if I back up here, you remember when the church originally started, it was in what city? Okay, it's in Jerusalem. And so here is Jerusalem down here. Now, after a while, we got to Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. The Bible says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. When you come to Antioch, this is where most of the missionary journeys, in fact, all of the missionary journeys are going to stem from Antioch, and it becomes the key church for the rest of the New Testament. Now, I'm going to zoom in. Just a little bit here. Here is Antioch. We are, we've been talking about Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. So they start here in Antioch. They go to Seleucia, and that is the port from which they leave. They come to the island of Cyprus, and they stop in Salamis. While they're there in Salamis, they go to the synagogue and they preach. They go to the other side of the island to Paphos. You remember that, in fact, you see it out to the side here, uh, the proconsul Sergius Paulus is converted. He's got this uh, sorcerer who um, he listens to as an advisor. His name is Bar-Jesus. Paul ends up striking him blind. And then they travel up here to Perga. Perga is where John Mark leaves them, and that's going to become very important as we get to chapter 15. What I have read historically is starting here on the journey up to Antioch, this was a road that was filled with robbers. It was very dangerous. Some people think that's the reason that John Mark might have turned and gone back. When you get to this area, this is Antioch in Pisidia. They go and they preach there in the synagogue. Almost the entire city turns out to hear them. The Jews get envious because of this, and um, they end up rebuking the Jewish leaders. Uh, the Jews then turn the whole city against them and throw them out of the city. I just looked over at Jonathan, and that reminded me. I was supposed to make an announcement tonight. And that is, Jonathan, can you make the announcement so I don't botch it up? I'll have more 
Okay, October 8th, if you would like to participate in the door knocking, we will be doing that, and there's a sign-up sheet. You can talk to Jonathan if you need some more details. Okay, we're here in Antioch of Pisidia. They get thrown out of that city, and so then they come over here to Iconium. In Iconium, a lot of people believed. The, uh, verse 2 says, but the unbelieving Jews poisoned the people against them. They decided they were going to kill them, and so they leave there, and they go to Lystra. And this is where we are in our study right now. When they get to Lystra, they, they meet a man who is crippled, and they miraculously heal this man. As a result of that, the people in Lystra who are heathens, they think that they are gods. In fact, they think that uh, Barnabas is Zeus, that is the chief god. They think that Paul is Hermes. Uh, in Greek, it's Hermes. In Roman, it is Mercury. And so they think they're gods. Why do they think that? That's all they know. They don't know about the true God. All they know is about these fake gods. History also says that in this particular city, in uh, Lystra, there was a temple to Zeus. And so they're going to automatically associate them with what they know. And so you get to Acts chapter 14 and verse 11, and the Bible says, Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. That is, the gods are here. Only a god could do a miracle. Verse 14, or chapter 14 and verse 12, And Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. And so they said, Paul and Barnabas are gods. we got to sacrifice to them. we got to get presents for them. Verse 14, But when the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, heard this, they tore their clothes and they ran among the multitudes, crying out. That is, you can't do this. We are not going to accept worship. We are just men. Verse 15, and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Verse 16, this is where we left off last week, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Now, we were talking about this phrase. He says, Paul says, that in the past, God allowed the Gentiles to walk in their own ways. Does that mean that only the Jews had a law and the Gentiles could just do whatever they wanted to and it didn't make any difference? It doesn't mean that. How do we know that it doesn't mean that? We looked at some passages. Acts 17, 29 and 30 says, We ought not to think of the divine nature like gold or silver or stone. That is, don't think of deity as gold or silver or stone. What's he mean when he says that? Why would they think of deity as gold or silver? He's talking about idols. He says, or stone. They would take a stone and they would carve it out in the shape of a god and they would say, that's a deity. He says, or something shaped by art and man's devising. That is, you shouldn't carve out the shape of something and say, oh, that's deity. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, Isaiah pokes fun at them. 
because he says they would take a tree and they would cut it down and they would take a piece of wood and they would shape it like some sort of a deity and then they would cover it in gold and then they would fall down and worship it and then the leftover wood, they would take it and they would cook over it and, and warm themselves. And he said, then they would come back to the idol and they would have to nail it to the ground so it wouldn't fall on its face. And he said, this is a deity? So what's he saying here? You shouldn't think of gold or silver as a deity. Verse 30, he says, truly the times of this ignorance God overlooked. With regard to the Gentiles especially, there were some things that God overlooked in the past. What are those things? I don't know what all is entailed there, but he says this, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Our question was, could Gentiles do whatever they wanted? No, we talked about the men of Nineveh last week. And remember, Jonah went to the men of Nineveh. They were all Gentiles. And he said, repent of your wickedness. God said, or I'm going to destroy you. What does that mean? The Gentiles were held to some kind of a standard. There were some things God overlooked, but God drew the line somewhere. All right? Look at uh, this passage, Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that doesn't mean they didn't have any law, it means they didn't have the law of Moses. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do the things in the law, when he says by nature, some people think that means there's just this built-in thing that we naturally have. This word actually can mean by habitual practice. I don't know which one. He says, although not having the law, they are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. Whatever we know, if you go back to Romans 1 and verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power in Godhead so that they are without excuse. There are some things that exist in nature that should communicate to mankind that there is a God. There were some things that existed that should have communicated them some basic ways they ought to treat people, and there was some standard to which God held the Gentiles. Where he drew that line, I don't know. The Old Testament doesn't even really tell us. But he's addressing this. Uh, let me go back to the other map here. All right? So... He says, back in uh, Acts 14, 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. But now look at verse 17. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. That is, there's some standard the Gentiles had to live up to. And that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So they saw them do this miracle. So they go and get garlands and they get oxen and they're going to sacrifice to them. And Paul and Barnabas ripped their clothes and they said, no, we will not have this. We are just men. Let us tell you about the true God. Not these idols, these worthless things. The God of heaven is not silver and gold carved by man. And it says, nevertheless... They could scarcely restrain them. What does that mean? They are absolutely determined. They've got it in their head. They are gods, and it doesn't matter what they say. We are going to, it says they scarcely could 
So the people are still trying. Why they're telling them no, the people are still trying to sacrifice to them. All right? Now notice this. Verse 19, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. All right? I want you to look at uh, the map here. Ah, I thought I could zoom in here, but apparently I can't. Okay, here we are in Lystra. I'm coloring it in here. All right? It says the Jews came from Antioch. Here's Antioch and Iconium, and they came to Lystra. Do you know how far it is from Antioch to Lystra? Not that I would expect anybody to know that. So I was going to be totally impressed if someone knew that. The distance from Antioch to Lystra is 93 miles. Now think about doing that on foot or even doing that on a horse. How long is it going to take you to travel 93 miles and the terrain that existed at that time? This is going to be difficult. This is a, a country where there's robbers, there's a difficult terrain, but these Jews traveled from Antioch 93 miles to Lystra. Why did they do this? It says, they came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, uh, supposing him to be dead. These Jews came 93 miles to Lystra for what reason? They are so upset at Paul. He's teaching the gospel. They can't stand it. Somehow word comes to them that he's left there. Remember, they threw him out of the city. He shook the dust off his feet and moved on. Word comes back to them that he's 100 miles away teaching again. And so they're going to travel down here and they say, we're going to put an end to this. Then it says, they turned the whole city against him and they stoned him to death. Now, don't you find this interesting? Because what does the previous verse say was taking place? They, man, talk about fickle. In one verse, they can't hold them back from sacrificing to them because they say they're gods. And in the very next verse, they stone him to death and drag him out the city. That just blows my mind, how people can flip-flop that quickly. It made me think about some things I've even seen in our country and sometimes how riots will take place. Someone will say something and it just incites the people and they go crazy and they, they behave uh, in a very irrational way. These people think they see a God, so they go crazy to the point that we're going to sacrifice to you even though you're saying no. Then the Jews said, no, don't follow them, they're evil. They flip-flop and then they stone Paul to death. Then they drag him out of the city. The end of verse 19 says, supposing him to be dead. Is he actually dead? Doesn't seem like it, because otherwise I think it would have said that he's dead, but uh, apparently they took him out. He's in bad shape. Maybe he's unconscious. Whatever it is, in their minds they think he's dead, and so they leave him there. All right? Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, the disciples think he's dead. They gather around him, and he rose up, and what did he do? He went back into the city. That is interesting. Did the Lord miraculously heal him, or did he wake up from being unconscious, and he's bloody and beaten and in terrible shape, and goes back into the city? The Bible does not tell us. All we know is he went back into the city. 
And the Bible says that the next day they left, if we go back to the map, and they went to Derby. Not much is going to happen in Derby, except the Bible says that they preached there, and um, it was obviously uneventful, or the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to record it. Verse 22, yes. Yeah. So I think we're talking about broken bones, skull fractures. Um, I, I really believe um, what Jimmy's saying is a good point, and that is I should describe the, the stoning a little bit. When we think about stoning, you might think about someone uh, pelting, uh, pelting you with rocks. The point of stoning was to kill the person. And so they were going to have large rocks. If you're going to kill a person with a large rock, where are you going to throw it? Probably going to throw it at their head uh, because you want to kill the person. Now, if they have hit him with these large rocks to the point that they think he is dead, then obviously they've done enough damage where it appears that way to them. Maybe he's bleeding. Maybe there's broken bones. Um, This very well could be a miracle. Some people even equate this. Some people have thought, this might be the same occasion that's referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says that uh, I knew a man in Christ 14 years, above 14 years ago, whether in the spirit or out of the spirit, I know not, who was called up to the third heavens. And he's describing himself, but he's speaking third person. And he says, he was called up to the third heavens and he saw things which it's not lawful to utter. It seems like Paul was describing a time in which he is dead and he saw things, and he came back from heaven, and he couldn't tell them. Uh, he says paradise, actually, in 2 Corinthians 12. Some people think this is that. I don't think the timeline lines up properly. I think 2 Corinthians 12 would have been prior to this, but because of the, the parallels they see here, maybe it was. If that's the case, then you've got a, an example of him actually being murdered here and being raised from the dead. So uh, thanks, Jimmy. All right, so they go to Derby. After they leave Derby, yes, ma'am? Uh huh. Don't know. There's so much about this that you're curious about, isn't there? Um, yes. Yeah, the disciples gathered around him. Um, what were the disciples thinking? Maybe he was dead. Maybe they're preparing to get the body. Maybe they're preparing for a funeral. I don't know. Um, This is one of the things the Bible leaves us guessing. So many passages we are just filled with curiosity about, and the Bible is very brief. I think that's a sign of inspiration. The Bible doesn't exist to fulfill all of our curiosity, but um, fascinating. All right, Uh, let's keep going here. Notice that um, verse 22 Uh, Well, the end of verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel in that city, that is Derby, they made many disciples, it's successful, and they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Where did those Jews just come from to stone him when he was in Lystra? 
Iconium and Antioch. So they go back to Lystra, where he was just stoned, and then they go back to Iconium and Antioch, where there's obviously some pretty intent people because they traveled 93 miles to stone him to death. He goes back to those cities. What's the first thing that goes through your mind when you hear that they went back to those cities? Okay, what are those people going to think? Here they are, back in the city. Do you think the word got back to these people? What about the people who thought they killed him? Or what if they did kill him? All these things start flooding into your minds. The first thing that went through my mind is, what are they thinking going back to those cities again? Um, all we know is they went back for what purpose? Verse 22 says, strengthening the souls of the disciples. They went and established the churches some period has passed. The Bible is very quick here, but we're talking about period of months. And so now they're going back. They're strengthening these churches that were established, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, we could be tempted to pass over this verse quickly, but there is a lot to unravel or to unpack in this verse. All right? First... He says these churches, they went back and strengthened them. What does that tell us? New converts need to be strengthened. We need the word. We need to study. We need to grow. We need preaching. It says they exhorted them to continue in the faith. What does that mean? Be faithful. Keep fighting. Resist sin. Stay away from sin. We need to have preaching against sin. We need to have preaching to not go back into idolatry, don't go back into the wickedness, stay faithful, all right? Then notice this, he says, he tells them, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is not the kingdom in the sense of the church, this is the eternal kingdom. That is, if you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go through many tribulations. That tells me that the Christian walk is not always going to be easy. It is very popular these days for people to take Christianity to mean that your life is going to be happy. The preaching, in fact, I can think of one very popular preacher on TV, and he says that's what he preaches, to have a positive life. He preaches positive preaching. He doesn't preach anything negative. He wants to build people up. He wants to make their life happier. And that's the kind of preaching he says people need. What did they preach? They said, through many tribulations, you're going to enter the kingdom of God. Do many tribulations sound like you're necessarily going to have a happy life? Don't get me wrong. The Christian life is the happiest life a person can have. But becoming a Christian, is that about preaching that you're going to have a happy life? He said there's going to be many tribulations along the way. What kind of tribulations would you have along the way if you're going to be a Christian? Persecution. You're definitely going to have persecution. What did Paul just experience? What did Paul and Barnabas just gone through? And then they're going to come back and tell them, brethren, look, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have many persecutions. You're going to have many tribulations. In fact, um, let's see. I think I made a slide for that. Yeah, look at this. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 5 through 11, Peter says this, But also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. This is a section we call the Christian graces. 
When we hear the phrase, give all diligence, it sounds like the idea of trying really hard. That's not what this Greek word means. This Greek word carries with it the idea of hastening. That is, do this quickly. It's the idea of eagerness. It's the idea of zeal. Sometimes when a person becomes a, first becomes a Christian, man, he studies. He goes to bed every night reading his Bible. He's at every service. He's out teaching his friends and his neighbors. He's got zeal. That's what this word means. He's saying, and sometimes when time passes, people start to lose this zeal. And they don't do it like they did in the beginning. And they stop doing what this word means. So he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and kindness. And he says, quickly, zealously be working to add these things to your faith. Then he's going to go down just a few verses. And in verse 10, he's going to use this same phrase again, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. What does that mean? You're not automatically just going to go to heaven. You've got to give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Brethren, listen to me. The Christian life requires diligence. It requires earnest effort. Through many tribulations, we are going to enter the kingdom. In fact, Listen to this. Did I make a slide? Yes, I did. Uh, I make so many slides, I can't remember what I made and what I didn't make. Look at this one. Luke 13, 24. I mentioned this in the sermon Sunday morning or night. I can't remember. Luke 13, 24. Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for I say unto you that a many will seek to enter in and shall not be able. I mentioned to you that the word strive is from a Greek word. Does anyone remember what the word was? Probably not. I'd have been really impressed again. Ah, that is right. You are close. It is the word agonizomai, and it is where we get what English word? Agonize. When he says strive to enter, it's where we get the word agonize. Literally, this Greek word means struggle. Struggle to enter in at the straight gate. And I pointed out in the sermon that doesn't mean that you've got to struggle that you're good enough. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that God set the bar here and you've got to climb to a certain level of purity to get there. What it means is walking in the light requires diligence. The Lord expects us to keep trying, doing our best to serve Him. You're not going to be lackadaisical. You're not going to be lazy about this. There's going to be tribulations along the way. You're going to have to be busy teaching people. You're going to have to be at worship. There's a lot involved in this. It's not what people always think. People think, I can just, you know, I, I, I got my ticket punched. Uh, Jimmy? Yeah, I, I, th 
we see things changing. Yeah, things are definitely changing. And that's a great point. Um, Jimmy's done mission work in Africa for a number of years. Um, in certain parts of the world, and particularly historically, to become a Christian might cost you everything financially. Uh, well, look what Paul, as he's telling them in verse 22, through much tribulation, you'll enter the kingdom of God. That's after he was just stoned and pelted with rocks because he was teaching the truth. And that's the sort of thing they were facing in the New Testament. All right, let's keep rolling here. I'm trying to cover some ground. I have a tendency sometimes to get bogged down on a verse. So, um, And y'all are smiling, so you must agree with me. So, All right, verse 23, they went back. Let's see, let's go back to my map here. Okay, um, here we are. And they've gone back. They're strengthening the churches along the way. They go back to Iconium, Lystra. They go back to Antioch. And the Bible says, and they appointed elders in every church, and they prayed, and they fasted, and they commended them in the Lord, uh, commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They go back to these churches that have been around for a number of months, and they begin to appoint elders in those cities. Again, there's a lot packed in this verse. So let's go through a few things here. Number one, it is God's desire for the church to have elders. That is the plan. That is the ideal. Let me ask a question. Can a congregation exist without elders? Yeah. Sure, it, it could. I remember, but it's God's desire to have elders. There was a church in South Carolina that I know about. They had about 600 members. They had existed for years in Charleston. And they didn't have elders. And a friend of mine, a family member, actually was talking to one of their members and said, why don't you have elders? You've existed for years. You've got 600 people. And this man said, things are going well. We don't need elders coming in here messing up everything. It's God's desire that the church have elders. That is our goal. That's what we should look for. Now, I want to point out a few things. Can the church exist without elders. There are four different conditions that churches could find themselves in. Number one, they can be scripturally organized. Number two, they could be unscripturally organized. Number three, they could be scripturally unorganized. Number four, they could be unscripturally unorganized. Got all that? That's confusing. Let me explain it to you. Number one, I didn't know I put all these little clicks in here. They can be scripturally organized. What does that mean? Scripturally means according to the ideal of the Bible, and they are organized. That means a congregation is organized. They have elders. They have an organization, and it's the way the Bible says to do it. They've got elders, and they're doing it right. You might also have deacons, qualified men. You might have evangelists and teachers. There's an organizational structure. Secondly, you could be unscripturally, man, this goes so fast. You could be unscripturally organized. What does that mean? You have some sort of a structure, but it's not according to the Bible. It's an unscriptural structure. For instance, you might have a pastor who leads everything. You might have some sort of a super organization, uh, maybe a board of deacons. You might have women as elders. 
Uh, you might have some sort of structure so that you're organized, but it's not a scriptural structure. A congregation could have unqualified elders. That would be organization, but an unscriptural organization. Number three, you could be scripturally unorganized. Now, what does that mean? It's scriptural, it's acceptable to God, but you don't have the organization that God desires. And so what that would mean is you don't have elders. You're not organized, not the way that the Bible plans for it to be, but it's still a scriptural organization. You desire to have elders, you're working toward that, you just haven't gotten there yet. In fact, that's where these congregations would have been that Paul and Barnabas established, and then they're going to come back later and appoint elders. Here is the fourth one, unscripturally unorganized. It's not scriptural, and they don't have an organization structure. What would that mean? They don't have elders, but they could. Maybe they've got qualified men, but they just won't serve. We're qualified, but forget it. We don't, we don't want to do it. Maybe there are members who refuse to accept. Maybe you've got six men who are qualified, but the members say, no, we're not having it. We won't put up. We'll revolt. We'll leave if you establish elders. Number three, there's a refusal to, to acknowledge the need for elders, like the congregation I just mentioned. So they would be unscripturally unorganized. So you've got four different conditions that could exist. When Paul first established these congregations along with Barnabas, you've got them in this situation. They're scriptural, but they're unorganized. After he comes back, they're going to set up elders so that they are scripturally organized. That is, this is the ideal situation that God wants. Now, in order to have elders, what must you first have? Got to have Christians. Incidentally, uh, Ben asked me to teach his class the next three weeks. He's going to be gone, and it's on the qualifications of elders. So I'll be dealing with that on Sunday mornings, but um, I kind of gave away the answer there. If you're going to have elders, what must you have? You got to have qualified men. You've got the qualifications of elders listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. You have to have men that meet these qualifications and if you don't, you can't have elders. What if you say, well, we've got some men who are pretty close. We'll just go ahead and install them. What do you have? You've got your unscripturally organized. You put men in who aren't qualified. Brethren, I will tell you something. If you put unqualified men in an eldership, it will haunt that church for years and it's a lot easier to put them in than it is to get them out. And I have seen congregations who are so eager to have an eldership, they will say, we really need elders. Let's go ahead and put these men in, and they're not really qualified. God established these qualifications for a reason. And if you put men in who don't meet the qualifications, there will be trouble because of that. Now, what's interesting, Paul and Barnabas established these congregations and then they travel back, go back to my map here, okay? They're going to travel back to these areas where they've only been a few months prior, and they're going to establish elders. Does that strike you as odd that they're appointing elders that soon? Yeah. 
Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the qualifications of an elder is that he's not to be a novice. That is a Greek word that literally means newly planted. That is, he's supposed to be mature in the faith. So, a few months later, they are establishing elders. How can that be? Well, a couple of things you've got to keep in mind is you've got people here. Wow, remind me not to put all those clicks in in the future. You've got some people who some of them would have been Jews who were very knowledgeable in the Word of God from the Old Testament. So you've got people who are already mature to some extent who are knowledgeable. But here's another thing that is very important that we know. God gave miraculous gifts in the first century in order to help establish the church. Ephesians 4.11, and I'll stop here, he gave some to be apostles. That's a miraculous ability. Prophets, evangelists in the miraculous sense, some pastors and teachers. What's he talking? What's a pastor? It's an elder. It's, it's the same thing as an elder. So there were some that had miraculous abilities that contributed to them having the knowledge necessary to be an elder. Why? He says that the church would be established. So things are going to be different now. We're already out of time. But Jimmy? That's very true. That's right, because we would have had men who were already very mature, and they were ready for the church to come. Yeah. That's true. Of course, a lot of these people in this here are also Gentiles. So, um, All right, thanks. We'll stop there. Appreciate uh, the interaction.